Hey there, everybody. I am Stephanie Goss, and this is another episode of the Uncharted Podcast. So this week on the podcast, Andy and I are tackling another topic from our mailbag. We got a letter from a practice manager who is making the shift from a small mom and pop GNP to a brand new high-end boutique style emergency and referral practice. And they are wondering, what should I be thinking about that is different in terms of the customer service aspects of dealing with a different price point, a different clientele, um, and really a different set of expectations. Is it really as different as I think it is, or is it more the same than it is different? Let's get into this one. And now, the Uncharted Podcast. And we are back. It's me, Dr. Andy Rourke, and Stephanie, big time on my way. I'm making it (laughs) go. Hi, Andy. (laughs) How's it going? Oh, man. It's good. Gosh, it's good. The uh, the fall weather is rolling up in South Carolina, and I am spending uh, every moment I can outside just walking around the vet clinic or you know or pulling weeds in my yard or walking Mm -hmm. the dog and just gosh really really enjoying it and enjoying life how about you it's good things are good it's it's very busy um you know activities and fall sports and all of the things the rain has definitely uh, come to Western Washington as it does. And so we're enjoying the first of our fall storms and um, it's, things are, things are good. It's, it's busy. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I am excited about, uh, about today's episode. Yeah. Um, We had a manager friend that both of us know who was asking some questions and we said, can we, we asked her, can we talk about this on the podcast? Because this would be a great topic. Oh, yeah. So, um, so yeah, this is, this is, this is an interesting one. It's a fun one. I think, I don't know how common it is. I'm really interested to see, but I think it's good stuff for everybody to hear. And Mm -hmm. so I, I, her question made me think about what's really important in managing practices. Mm-hmm. And it was just a neat way to kind of distill some of this stuff down. So I, I think this is going to be a really good episode, even if this situation is not the situation that you're in. Yeah, totally. So they were asking, they have a friend who is going through a transition and they were just asking if anybody had any advice about this situation. Um, and it is a person who's been managing a hospital. They've been managing a small, you know, mom and pop family owned kind of GP practice that has long established clientele, but, uh, is on the lower cost end of the spectrum. And this manager is moving to, um, managing a a much bigger, uh, brand new kind of high end specialty ER, um, referral hospital. So it's a big jump, not only from GP to ER and specialty, but going from a small family practice to kind of a bigger, um, 
you know, high-end boutique kind of practice. And so our friend was asking, it seems like they are so radically different, especially in terms of the clientele and customer service issues, because you're talking about GP versus ER. Um, And so she was asking, has anybody made a transition like this and have any advice that I can pass on to my friend? Yeah. So, so I, I love this question. And so I, I, I started to frantically try to type out ideas and I was like, this is, I'd rather just, I'd rather explain this. And so I was like, yeah, we should do this for the podcast. So yeah. All right. So, so we'll start, let's start with Headspace talking about the difference between a small little, you know, uh, affordable family mom and pop shop place mm-hmm. and, and a big emergency referral place. And golly, that's gotta be so different and so scary. Uh, and and I just want to start by saying one of the things I love the most about veterinary medicine is it is a house with a thousand rooms. And mm-hmm. I have found that the ability to move between rooms and change what you do in your career in this profession is amazing and unparalleled and wonderful. Mm-hmm. And so I always want to take a moment to pounce on the idea that I'm just a little fish and I only know this one little thing and I couldn't do something in our profession that seems so radically different. I, I want to stomp that idea and say, buddy, the world is so open to you in this profession and you should look at your options and you should believe that if you have been successful at what you do, you can probably be successful doing things that are that seem wildly unrelated inside the umbrella of that medicine. I just don't think yeah. anybody should get tied down to this idea of like, I'm I'm a I'm I'm a small town veterinary technician. I could never go work at a diagnostic lab or I could never go into emergency medicine. That's too fast paced for what we've done. Or I could never go and be at a big clinic that's got 20 doctors and does high end medicine. That's just beyond me. But that's that is the scared little voice in your head talking. And it's it's not it's not it's generally not true. Yeah. And so I just let's just call it out and go. Yeah. And I think, I think for me, the nail that you hit on the head there is if you have the desire to try Mm -hmm. something different like that, I think that there is absolutely nothing that should stop you from that perspective. To your point, it is very much the house of a thousand rooms. And just because your skill set is not, just because you were not trained for that specific skill set does not mean the skill set that you have and the tools that you have are not equally applicable in another environment. And I think a lot of people very easily get into that headspace of, I I can't do this because I don't know how to do all of those things. I think there is this limiting belief that a lot of us in veterinary medicine have that if I I don't have the experience, then I couldn't possibly jump into that, to that role, um, which is, which is so silly. The question for me is, um, I think there has to be a desire to, to want to try those things because they are radically different. And I think where people often fail is that they don't, um, they don't actually want to necessarily do it. They're just looking for a change and they aren't actually, they don't have the desire. And I think that's where a lot of the complication, um, that I have seen anyways comes in and also realizing that, you know, um, we try different things. Sometimes we like it. Sometimes we love it. And sometimes it's not for us and that's okay. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. I always say to people when they're talking about making a change, I'm like, look, it's not what you're going to do forever. It's what you're going to do next. That's all it is. You're going to, you're going to sign a one year contract 
mm-hmm. you're going to go see what it is. And that's what you're going to do next year. Right. And then you're going to reassess and you might do it again or you mm-hmm. might not. That's not mm-hmm. failure. It's fine. That's that's the path of life. And I feel like especially doctors, I, I think a lot of doctors have this idea that they are going to graduate from vet school and find their forever practice and stay there forever. And so I had so if that's your idea, if that's your mindset, man, getting your first job out of vet school is this horrifyingly stressful, important thing that you yes. just have to get right because it defines the rest of your life. That's not true. That's not how this works. And just the sooner we mm-hmm. all put that aside and say, hey, this is your first job. That's what it is. And maybe it'll also be your last job and that would be great, but probably not. And yep. you're probably, you know, <laughs> life, life rolls on and you're right. going to roll with it and you're just going to go see what it is. And so, I, yeah. I, but I really do think to your point, um, if you are open to learning and you really want to learn and do it, I, I think that, um, I, I don't think there's much of a downside to trying. I think people have a lot more latitude than they think they do. Well, and I think a lot of people look at it from the perspective of like, I, I have been working in veterinary medicine. And so because it's a, a role within veterinary medicine, it's, it's weird that we disqualify ourselves by saying, yes, I've worked in vet med, but I don't have those skills. That's so weird because nowhere else would you look at it and say, say that about your role. It would be like, I've worked in this field. And so I'm going to try a new, a new thing and I'm going to learn new skills, but we weirdly disqualify ourselves. And the question that I would ask is when you started in veterinary medicine, whether you started as a, you know, as a kennel tech or you started as a front desk, or you started as a doctor, like no matter where you started, you didn't know veterinary medicine when you started, you had to learn it. And so why is this any different? Why do we disqualify ourselves, um, you know, straight out of the gate, just because we have experience in veterinary medicine? I just think that's so weird. Well, you know, it's funny. I I remember a couple of years ago, I was, I was doing presentations outside of Denver. This was back in the pre-COVID times. And Mm -hmm. I was doing a whole day and so I spent the whole day in this in this sort of convention hall, and um, and I was talking about about team building and team communication and buy in and conflict management and things like that. And that was that was pretty much the day. And I noticed over the course of the day that the AV group who was doing the microphones and uh, like the projectors and stuff was getting steadily larger. Uh-huh. And at the end of the day, <laughs> there were like a dozen AV people in the back of the room, which is ridiculous because uh-huh. usually you go and you do a talk and they set There's, the stuff up yeah. in the morning and they usually just leave. There's usually no AV people. Right. But at the end of the day, there was a dozen <laughs> AV people back at the microphone table and people standing up in the back. And when I was done, <laughs> these two guys come up to me and they were like, hey, uh, I'm Dave and this is Sean. We own the AV company. Uh, that is servicing this event. And we actually called our entire staff in to watch uh, the back half of your talks because <laughs> it's perfect. You know, like It's exactly what we've been dealing with. And it was like, you're a godsend. And I, I say that not, not as an egotistical thing about the quality of my lectures, but just because it was amazing to me that people who do projector rental and microphone setup for a living were like, 
this is exactly what we need. And this mm-hmm. is exactly what we're dealing with. And like, yeah. it was just such a clear, stark reminder of, you think this is a vet med problem or a small clinic vet med problem, and it's not. This is right. a managing human being problem. Yes. Yes. And it is it's, so it's universal. A- I just think people don't realize how universal it is. It's a hundred percent true. You know, it's it's funny. I um I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I, you know, didn't I was not the person who was like, I wanna be a vet when I grow up. I I did not think that veterinary medicine was the career that I would be in. And I was um an arts major and and have degrees in theater and music. And I remember a time um where like all <laughs> like a lot of parents whose kids go into the arts, you know, my parents were like, are you sure that this is what you want to do? And there's always somebody who asks the question of what the hell are you going to do with a theater degree? Right. (laughs) And, and Mm -hmm. I remember, I remember laughing at the time and brushing it off, but I will tell you, learning how to manage people in theater gave me all of the skills that I still use every single day in terms of managing people in the clinic because it is about managing humans. <laughs> it is <laughs> managing it is people so at the Unjoined Veterinary Conference. It's like, Andy, get it together. You can go out there, smile on your face, jazz hands. Yeah. <laughs> but it is so true. It's um it it is very universal. You're you're hurting cats whether you're doing it, mm-hmm. you know, at at a high-end department store or you're doing it on a stage or you're in a clinic like it is yep. the same. You still have people, you still have customer service skills. And so I do I do think that it's more similar than it is different. I I completely agree. And and the skills that made you successful when you started in your small clinic are probably the skills that are gonna make you successful in your big clinic. The biggest thing that people screw up, and again, we're still in the headspace part. The biggest thing that I think people screw up is that they get um they they get wrapped up in in self-confidence issues or they get into a negative narrative and they're like, I'm gonna have to prove myself. Yes. You know, I'm gonna have to go in there and convince people that I know what I'm doing. And buddy, I have seen that mentality blow up in people's faces so many times. And this is where Brene Brown nails it on this one. Uh, Vulnerability is your friend. And and I just think it it is counterproductive for people to say, I'm going from this little place, I'm going to this big place, or I'm going to this different kind of practice, and I'm going to show them what I'm worth. You will show them what you're worth, and you will convince them, and you will win them over that should not be your opening uh, position because yes. what happens is we've all seen this. The person comes into a new environment. They don't understand the culture. They don't understand the people. They don't understand the values. And they're telling us how it's going to be. And you go, yep. man, this this ship is sinking at the dock. Yep. You know? And so so vulnerability and optimism are your friend. It's It's about coming in and saying, tell me about why you work here. Tell me about what yes. you love about this place. Tell me about what's important and how we, you know, and how we, uh, and how we go forward. And and why did you choose to work here? And and um, yeah, if you were going to tell your friend they should come and work at this practice, what would you tell them? Like, why would you tell them they should come here? And mm-hmm. and I'm just and I'm just asking. And I would say, tell me about how you do this. And again, this is true for new doctors going into practices. I again, I see doctors just blast themselves in the foot 
by walking in and saying, I'm going to show you how much I know. Yep. And then you're doing stuff that's not the protocols that they were taught. It's not how any of the doctors do it. You're making people wildly uncomfortable. And again, I'm not saying you can't get to where you affect protocols. I'm sure you can. And I want you to get to that point. But that comes from a point of trust. And you don't get trust from flexing on people when you first arrive. You get trust from being vulnerable and honest and listening and learning so that you can support the people who are there. And if you go in with an open heart and optimism about the future and a sincere desire to learn and understand the practice before you try to manage it, you will do just fine. Yeah. And when we get to the, when we get to our, our action steps, um, I want to circle back to this because I think breaking down some ways that you can approach it that still may allow you to maintain your confidence, but still demonstrate um, vulnerability and openness is so, so important. And there's some things that I have watched be really, really successful um, that I that I think are worth talking about. Yeah. If you um, if you want to see what this looks like, uh, and I will give you this may be a bit cheesy, but if you want to see what this looks like, I love the show Ted Lasso right now. I am completely addicted to Ted Lasso, the show. It's on It's on Apple TV, if you haven't seen it. Uh, I know everyone's like, oh, a different streaming service. <laughs> Not, I, trust me, I get it. I am also one of those people who's quote unquote, saving money on cable by subscribing to seven <laughs> different streaming services from five to $15 a month. Like it, it is, it is ridiculous. I signed up for Apple TV uh, just to watch Ted Lasso and then I'm gonna 100% cancel my subscription. Um, but. You can watch the first two episodes for free. Uh, Apple TV, find Ted Lasso. And um, if you love the first two episodes, keep going. And <laughs> again, it, just in the show, it, just, it is the story of this guy who's set up to fail from the very beginning. And he's brought into a situation he knows nothing about. But he is the most nice, optimistic person ever. And I just can't help but root so deeply for this guy. And like the show just makes you feel good about being a good person and wanting to be a good person and about just it's so good in this time just to see hope modeled as a behavior, mm -hmm. you know, hope for what can be and hope for where we're going. And I got it. This fills my cup so much. So anyway, uh, Ted Lasso, you can watch the first two episodes. But um, but honestly, it's just it, the, the first two episodes of the show are him going to essentially coach a new team where he does not, he doesn't even know the game he's coaching and he's going there. And it really is a testament to what you can do being nice to people and trying to understand them and just mm -hmm. putting yourself out there. So anyway, vulnerability yeah. and optimism, they are your friends way over trying to flex on people and show them how good you are. And the last part, and, and this all comes together in this point for me, relationships are the cornerstone of success, mm -hmm. right? They, they are. Um, everything that you want to do depends on trust and people trusting you and trust happens inside relationships. Mm -hmm. And so when people say, oh man, I'm going to this new place and I don't know what to do. What's the first thing that I should do? First thing you should do is make friends. Yeah. You should, you should get to know the people that you work with. You should try to understand them. You should try to know them as people because mm -hmm. ultimately your success is dependent on them trusting you and them believing that you're trying to help them. Um, and that doesn't happen in a vacuum and it doesn't happen with a good pep talk at a staff meeting. It, it happens with, with just talking to people. Mm -hmm. 
And, and I, I think actually when you transition from the environment, when, when you're in a, in a small practice where clients have been coming there forever, when you're the new person, it can be hard to break into the established relationships because you are the outsider. And in a bigger high volume practice, whether it's GP or, or specialty or ER, a lot of clients that you're seeing, you're seeing them for the first time. And so they're the new ones. And so you kind of have the advantage from that perspective of being able to just create relationships brand new, because it's not, it's not that same feeling of, you know, walking into a clinic where everybody went to elementary school together. And now they're working together, mm-hmm. right? Like that is, that is a different, um, that is a different environment. And so from, from that regard, as a, as a manager, you have the skills and the tools. And if you have the confidence in terms of building the relationships, both with the clients and the team, and that's where you focus, it's, um, I, I feel like it would be hard to mess that up. <laughs> Because it's it is almost like a fresh start from that perspective. Yeah. Do you have anything? Do you have anything else from Headspace, or do you want to take a break and then we can dive into how do we actually tackle this? I think that's what I got for Headspace. Okay, let's take a break. Hey, everybody, it's Stephanie, and I have to jump in here for one quick second and make sure that you know about a workshop that is coming up. You need to know about it, not because I am leading it, but because it is going to be awesome. And I'm so looking forward to having your participation in the workshop. It is called Communication Foundations. It is happening on Sunday, November 7th from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern, which is 1 to 3 p.m. Pacific. It is $99 for the public. If you are an Uncharted member, log in when you register and you get it for free. And um, we are going to be diving into the idea that we can find common ground with anyone, anywhere, at any time, whether the communication is personal or professional. It just takes a really strong foundation in communication. So we're going to talk about some fundamentals and then we're going to dive into a style of communication that when I learned about it early on in my vet med career, it was a game changer. And I'm super pumped to nerd out on this one with you guys. So if you are enjoying today's podcast, head on over to the website at unchartedvet.com forward slash events and check out the Communication Foundation's class information. Sign up. I would love to see you there. Now back to our regularly scheduled broadcast. All right, let's dig into how do we actually tackle this. So a lot of it is, honestly, a lot of it is headspace. A lot of it is just okay. getting your head in the right place and then reacting to what you're given. Um, mm-hmm. I really do think it's a big part of it. There are definitely actionable things that you can do to get yourself off on the right foot. Mm-hmm. Okay, so where where would you start if you were this manager and you were making the move from the small mom and pop clinic where everybody knows everybody else and you, you've known the, the clients have known you forever and you're going to a smaller but new specialty ER boutique kind of practice that is definitely on on the high end focus. What would you how would you approach it or would you start? Yeah. So there, there's sort of two homework items right off the bat. Uh, 
I want to understand the policies and protocols as, as best I can. You know, mm-hmm. anything that's written down that I can look at and be like, oh, okay, this is how you move appointments through your clinic. This is, yep. I understand what, I understand what's supposed to happen. And it may not be what actually happens, but at least I understand what's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and the mm-hmm. difference in, in a specialty ER practice is probably going to be very different from a GP practice. Anything I can learn from a handbook as yep. opposed to getting out in front of other people and learning, I would definitely rather learn from the handbook. And so what I'm going to say is, where are your policies and procedures? You know, I want to understand the workflow. I want to understand your wellness protocols. I just, you know, I, I, I want to, I want to get started with that. And so I'm going to, I'm going to try to ask for homework and just see what I can learn for, uh, that's written down. Mm-hmm. Second, I want to do the same thing that you and I advocate for when people get new jobs as like new graduates uh, and they come into the practices. Uh, I don't know if mentor is the right word. I want a point person. I want someone who can help me understand what's happening and just answer my questions as I learn the ropes. That doesn't have to be someone more senior than you. It doesn't have to be the practice owner who's super busy. It can 100% be your office manager or Mm -hmm. your head CSR or your Mm -hmm. head technician, but just someone who I have an introduction so that they're not weirded out when the new manager is asking them, "Why, why don't we use exam room one? Like, I just want to understand why I've been here for three weeks and no one has used exam room once. Oh, right. Because it smells like cat pee and we can't get rid of it. Okay, that's fine. Just didn't. Because it's the smallest and the air conditioning doesn't work in there and it becomes a little hot box. Like, okay. I just, that's super helpful for me to be able to ask that question and and just have someone know that that they're going to get those types of questions from me. So is there, is there a mentor, someone who can answer my questions, someone who can just talk to me about the way the practice works, someone who can validate the scenery. It is so useful to, to say to someone, Hey, it seems like this is a common occurrence. Is that true? And she goes, Oh yeah. Happens all the time. Or not really that. I don't know why that's been the last couple of weeks, but generally that's not been an issue. You're just, the timing is weird uh, for mm-hmm. you being here. Mm-hmm. Like, great, that's super helpful, and it's just it's an easy ask, and it just also shows people that you you want to understand them, you know, um, and 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 support them. And so mm-hmm. those those are the big homework things. And well, I take it back. There's there's one more big homework thing. Um, I want to so when digging the policies. I want to have a mentor, a contact point person that I can just ask questions to, uh, whether they're specific questions or whether they're validating senior questions. And the last one is I want to dig into the values of the practice. And I think this is something that a lot of people overlook. When you talk about the small mom and pop affordable care practice and the specialty ER um, white glove practice, Mm -hmm. high-end medicine practice, Generally, the biggest difference I th- I think that you'll see as far as function is around values. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that that one is better than the others. And I really try to hit this drum hard when I talk to vet clinics. I love and have worked with practices whose core values were, we work hard, we take care of each other, we make mistakes and we fail forward and we get back up. And I have worked around other practices whose core values were, we provide the best medicine. We never stop learning. All, uh, we are data and science driven. Mm-hmm. And, and and those are their core values. Right. They're very different places to work. And neither of them is better or worse. You know, some of them are like, we provide the highest quality care possible. And other practice says, our core value is we 
are we make healthcare accessible to everyone. And I go, those are both wonderful values. They are night and day different. Mm -hmm. And if you come from one right. and you try to jump in and lead the other, it's going to blow up in your face because yeah. you're, you're leading, uh, your values don't match the values of the team or the values of the people who are there. And so that value homework, uh, that stuff is really important. So those are my three things. Yeah, I, I love that. I would add to it, um, in addition to your homework point about, um, asking for the handbook and asking for policies and procedures manuals. I, you know, I think that this is great. If it's a new brand new clinic, they may not have it. They, you know, yeah. they may be, they may be flying by the seat of their pants. And so what a better opportunity as a leader and as a manager than to be able to say, well, let's start, you know, I'm here. I'm half going to have to learn all this. I'm new. Let's start writing it down. And, and use yeah. that as your base, because then not only are you learning, but you are contributing to the greater good for the team. And you're not telling them how you want them to do it. You're literally recording what they are currently doing. And then you can use that as a base to help them shape the future of looking at it and saying, is this actually how we want to do it? Do we want to do it sure. differently? Do we want to change, you know, do we want to make some changes? And it, and it isn't going to be viewed, I don't think, as um, you trying to come in and change them. You have that incredible opportunity to just literally record things in time, how they are going. And so to that point, for me, part of the homework in, in any new practice is you you have to build yourself time into the schedule to to be on the floor. And in every in every scenario, you know, when you're in a, whether you're in a small practice or a specialty ER, especially if you're ER, I hate to say it, but you need to work some overnights. You need to see what it's like at 2 a.m. on a Saturday morning so that you can understand what the team is dealing with. If that's part of the hospital culture and you've never experienced that, you've got to work um, you know, evening pickup from specialty services where patients have been having treatments all day and now they're all going home at 5 p.m. You got to get to know the rhythms of the practice. And so building out yourself a schedule in that first like four to eight weeks that allows you over time, you cannot eat this elephant overnight, <laughs> like over your yes. first two months allows you the time to be able to get to meet all of the different people on the team, see all of the different functions and services that the practice offers, you know, tour if you're doing specialty surgery, the ability to, um, you know, scrub in and watch some surgeries and see how things are fundamentally different in a practice that provides specialty surgery care versus spays and neuters in a mom and pop practice. Like those two things can, can be fundamentally different and you need to be able to observe that. And so, scheduling yourself the homework time to just watch and and learn and just let everybody know you just want to soak it up take lots of notes um and again especially if they don't already have policies and procedures manuals like what a better time to start capturing some of that and writing it down and figuring out how do we how do we build this moving forward yeah this is this is an investment mm -hmm. I, that that's the best way to look at it. this is an investment like I get that you're not excited about doing overnight shifts um, and you don't plan to do overnight shifts in the, in the future. Mm -hmm. 
this is an investment in being able to do your job well. It's just seeing what's really going on. And then also mm-hmm. just sort of showing people, hey, I, I want to understand mm-hmm. what you do. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I care about you and I, and I want to understand. Mm-hmm. So 100%, I, I think this is an investment is the best way to look at it. The other thing is you want to set these expectations as you come on board. Uh, and just if the bosses are thinking, maybe you're the first manager they've hired or um, maybe mm-hmm. you're the first manager they've hired in, in years and years, they may be expecting you to jump in and just take the reins. And I think a lot of people expect too much from a brand new hire. Yes. They're like, she's going to be up to speed in a week yes. and we'll be rolling. Um, I think you want to manage those expectations. And I think the way you do it is to say, hey, over the next couple of months, I'm going to work some of these odd shifts. I plan to spend a lot of time on the floor just watching. Uh, it may slow down me getting things done in the short term, but the long-term benefits are going to be really uh, really significant for me doing this. And so mm-hmm. I just uh, communicating what the plan is to, to upper management. I think that that is, I think that that's really, I think that's really important. And I think in terms of dealing with the customer service two two things that I would say is definitely scheduling yourself, as I said, time with the front desk team on the different shifts. And the, the question that I would ask every single one of them is tell me what your top three customer service challenges are. Like I, I want to know what you're dealing with on a regular basis. You're looking for commonality amongst the shifts. You're looking for, are there frequent challenges that everybody seems to be dealing with? Not only are you learning for yourself what the fundamental differences from a customer service perspective might be between you know, a specialty ER practice and a GP practice, but you're also looking for challenges that you can help them address as the team. Because let me tell you, if they're all telling you that there's a fundamental customer service issue, because maybe it's that, you know, the the new, their brand new hospital and the new software is requiring, you know, a customer service um, management password to override, to do some, something to fix something for clients. And they can never get anybody up front to help them do that. And clients are having to wait and wait let me tell you, if you can fix that problem for them, you will be the hero (laughs) very early on. And so spending that time with them allows you to see, is there any low hanging fruit there from a customer service perspective that you can help them address and, and be the hero for a minute and solve that problem for them? That allows you um, a big, big win, but just being able to observe, but also asking them because you're not going to do their job. And yes, your job as a manager is customer service from the perspective of you're usually solving the customer service problems that other people can't solve or that clients won't let them solve because it's a client who, you know, is demanding to speak to a manager. But the the front desk team is the one solving 98% of the challenges. And so by asking them, what are the most common things that you guys are dealing with? And then also asking them, what do you think is the number one thing you can't address to know what kind of problems are you going to have to tackle? This That kind of information gathering homework, I would say, is the strongest weapon that you have as a manager in terms of learning how things might be different between um, the new environment and the environment that you came from in a, in a GP practice. Yeah. I, I agree with that. You know, two quick points. Number one, if this sounds a lot like servant leadership, it's because it is. It, it is. On, <laughs> it, I mean, that's, that's what it is, is try to get in and figure out what the people need and how do I use my position to serve them. And if you mm-hmm. buy into what I said before about build relationships so you can build trust, looking 
to serve is a great way to build relationships and build trust. Um, the, the other thing I would say too is um, people, you know, talk is cheap. And so people are looking, they, they want to see who you are and they want to see that you care, that you're really trying to do. And so if there are things like Stephanie's saying, I've asked them like, hey, what are some what are some things that would make your life easier? Man, if I can put some wins on the board, even just small stuff, mm -hmm. I'm going to do it. And it, it's just, you know, actions speak louder than words. If I can come in and the first thing I do is make their life 1% easier in, you know, in, in the first week or two. Yeah. Great. I, I like where this is headed. Let's, <laughs> let's keep this up. You know, but um, right. I think a lot of people want to come in and they want to do the big stuff first. And I just want to advocate and say sometimes there is great advantages in just doing some of the small stuff first. Think, think low hanging fruit. Yeah, um, yeah. That's that. That's it. And the the last part I was going to swing around to, and people go, okay, I hear all of this. I hear all this. Surely there are things that people coming from small practices into larger practices tend to struggle with. And I, I want to talk about that a little bit. I, you know, number one, the reason I asked for the for the policy manual homework is because a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times your bigger hospitals are bigger because they've been around longer and uh, they tend to have a lot more policies and procedures maybe than <laughs> your small, especially your mom and pop hospitals where people just yell across the treatment room. No, don't put it there. Put it, put it. Put it back in the other. Yep, it goes there. All right, thanks. And that's that's their policy manual. Right. Is Diane is Diane telling people where to put things? Um, yep. That that tends to not happen in the bigger practice because they've grown past that. And so, right. Uh, catching catching up on on the amount of structure that has been created uh, that that's one challenge. The other big challenge is, in some cases, and again, I want to say all. In some cases people coming from small mom and pop practices have underdeveloped delegation muscles. And it's because when you have a team of 12, you can kind of just jump in and do what needs to get done. Mm -hmm. And when you have a team of 112, mm -hmm. it's much less <laughs> realistic for you to just jump in and do the thing. Um, and so right. those are skills in order to run a ship that big, you've got to be able to delegate to other people. You have to be able to yes. let other people do their job and support them in doing their job in a way that you maybe didn't have to when there was a team of 15. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I would say um, one of the, I, I'm one of those people who I have learned a lot on the job. And I am one of those people that thrives in a, in a school environment <laughs> and education is important to me. And so I would say, you know, if you have the opportunity to take some, um, take some project management classes or take some, uh, you know, business basics in terms of managing at that high level and really building out those delegation and time management and project management skills that will benefit you a million times over in a large practice environment. Cause I think you're so, so right. And that was one of the things I know that I really struggled to, to learn as I learned on the job, moving into bigger and bigger practices, because you can't, be all things to all people. And, uh, you know, I tried in multiple, multiple places and it's a really quick and easy recipe for burnout. 
if you try yeah. and do all of the things and be all the things for all people, because one of two things is going to happen. You are going to very quickly recognize that you don't have all of the skills and you're going to de- feel defeated and it's very easy to give up, or you are going to work yourself to the bone trying to learn all of the things at once and trying to be the best. And you will wind up sucking at pretty much everything because yeah. you're spreading yourself way too thin. I'll give you a third one. The, the third the third one is that you alienate the very people that you need the most mm-hmm. yeah. because you step on sure. them. You sure. know what I mean? Like because you're you're doing their job and kind of sure. taking stuff away from them or uh, you're by jumping in to help, you're making their job harder, which again, I, I think I've told this story a number of times. Um, I have learned how to ask how to help people because it was uh, clear to me early on when I was leading teams that my desire to help people sometimes created more work for them because I wouldn't do it the right way and they would have to go back and fix what I did. And that right. was more frustrating than if I didn't help the first time. Right. So, so that that's another sort of fallout point is if there are people and they're supposed to be handling these things and you uh, unilaterally decide to help them, uh, that that can be an alienating experience as well. Yeah. So, so what do we do about that? Uh, the the big thing for me of, of going into these larger practices is a mind shift, a mindset shift. So, um, in a smaller practice, I think people often tend to think success is getting this work done. And when you move into a larger place where there you where you have direct reports who they themselves are managing, where you're managing other managers it needs to much more become success is supporting people to get the job done. Mm-hmm. And yep. that may sound like a subtle difference, but it is really important. I am not yes. trying to get the job done because it's not my job to get the job done. It's my job to motivate and support and manage the other people whose job it is to get the job done. Yes. Yes, I love that. And then I think the the last tool circling back to, um, you know, where we were talking about in the beginning in terms of um, jumping in and, and helping and kind of learning protocols and processes. One of the best, um, best, like how, what to say and how to say it moments that I had was, um, watching a technician. I think we've all worked with the person who comes into a team um, and, I, and I have seen it a lot where you have an assistant or a technician or a CSR who comes from another clinic and they are wanting to prove themselves and wanting to feel really confident. And so they'll do the thing. And then when someone points out to them, hey, we do this thing this way, the response can often be, well, at my last clinic, we did this and it's defensive, right? Mm. Um, and and everybody gets real tired real fast of hearing at my last clinic, we did this. And I've been guilty of it. Like, it's just human nature to, you're, you're explaining yourself. Someone is saying, why yeah. did, basically, why did you do it this way? And so you are giving her a reason. That's how I learned how to do it. Because at my last clinic, this was how we did it. Um, but for the rest of the team, that can feel very, um, very almost passive aggressive, but it also Mm -hmm. feels like you're not trying to integrate yourself into the team. Um, And one of the things that I have seen done most successfully, I worked with a technician who was um, so, so like calm and graceful. And I, what I loved the most was um, when she was getting to know the team, she would say, is there anything that I should know about how you normally 
do this or how you normally handle this before I do this. So Mm. she was asking for their help. Hey, is there a heads up? Do you shave a certain way for catheters? Do you, um, you know, normally tell the client certain information? Not because she was wanting to turn it over to them and have them jump in and do the work for her, but because she wanted the opportunity to get that important information and then and then do what she already knew how to do. And I think I think from a, a terms of feeling confident as a manager, I know how to deal with people. I can jump in there and cowboy up and have a hard conversation hour one, day one with an aggressive client. I have the skill set, but I don't want to do that if I don't know what the normal protocols and processes are because I can make a much bigger mess trying to help than if I just pause for a second and say, hey, before I tackle this, is there anything that I should know? You know, it's like asking (laughs) when a client has a difficult client flag on their chart, you say, hey, does any, is there anything I should know about this client? Like, why do they have a difficult, <laughs> difficult co- client flag? Not because it's necessarily going to change what I do or how I do it, but I want the opportunity to know that before I decide my approach. And so I really, I really admired the hell out of how she did that because um, it, it gave buy-in from the team almost instantly because they got the opportunity to show off a little and lead and say, well, this is how we do it. And she still demonstrated the um, very important fact that it's not wrong to do it a different way. If, if you're still doing it correctly, <laughs> um, it, it just may be different styles of doing things and there can be room for, for the different styles. And I think that's one of the things that we tend to be close-minded about in veterinary medicine is that we get in a habit and a routine. And it's like, this is this is the only way to do it, but this is one way to do it. Yeah, no, I agree. I The phrase that I heard people use that I picked up myself is, um, how do you all do this here? Mm-hmm. Just, just checking, mm-hmm. how do you all do this here? Mm-hmm. And by saying, how do you do it here? I'm sort of trying to acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of different ways to do mm-hmm. this. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm also by asking, I am not trying to imply that where I did it, where I was before was better. Right. And and I want you guys to be like my last job. Like, no, but um, but I know, I think that that's great. I, I think that's a great, I think it's a great point. I think it's just a good, healthy point to make to the staff in general is, hey, every practice is different. We all have our own cultures, our own quirks, our own protocols, our own ways of doing things. I'm going to want to understand how you guys do. If you see me doing something that is not the way that mm-hmm. it's done here, please tell me. Mm-hmm. I won't be offended. Uh, I, I really, I just want to know. And, and, saying something like that at the very beginning really opens that door of, okay, this person is open to feedback. Okay. And then when you get that feedback, it is very, very important that you not (laughs) be defensive because that will shut the team down faster than anything. If you open that door and then the first time someone comes to you and says, Hey, normally when we do this, this is what we do. And you jump all over them. Like, well, I did it this way because and, you know, and explain all over them like that is not going to go over well. Sure. According to the AHA hospital guidelines right. published in 2020, my way is actually, yeah, no, just just say thank you for letting me know and file that away. Um, all Super of these helpful. things can be. Well, you know, I, I really like I, I really liked your point earlier on about, you know, 
jotting, if they don't have a policy manual, jotting it down, trying to figure out what they do um, instead of saying, we're doing everything differently. Ultimately, your job is going to be a lot about picking your battles, because I promise you, Mm -hmm. if you're at a big hospital, you're going to have plenty of battles. Uh, A lot of it's priority (laughs) setting. And so if you rise to the bait every time someone disagrees with you or does something differently or you don't like something exactly the way it's being done, you're going to bog down in piddly little battles. And then when you actually try to do something meaningful, you don't have that trust and you don't have that relationship and you just don't get it done. So just be smart and be selective about about where you fight your battles. And otherwise, just, just listen, just pay attention. Don't take it as right or wrong. Take it as how this clinic operates. And maybe this is something that we'll want to change in the future and maybe it's not. But we're just gathering information right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I that's that. I think all I've got on this. Have you got anything to add? No, this is a good one. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it gives some helpful advice. Uh, and if nothing else, it's always uh, it's always fun to talk about uh, things that that we have done in the past mistakes we've learned from. <laughs> oh gosh! Yeah. All right. Have a good one, guys. See you, gang. Take care. Well, everybody, that's a wrap on another episode of the podcast. Thanks so much for spending your time with us. We truly enjoy spending part of our week with you. As always, Andy and I enjoyed getting into this topic. Um, I have a tiny little favor to ask, actually two of them. One is if you can go to wherever you source your podcasts from and hit the review button and leave us a review. We love hearing your feedback and knowing what you think of the podcast. And number two, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll see you soon.